Hi, and welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a third-year graduate student um, at UIC, and I didn't even ask what department you're in. <laughs> Medicinal chemistry and pharmacognosy. Oh, it's a good thing I didn't ask. I would have totally <laughs> fucked that up. Um, yeah, so welcome, Alana Condren. What's your random fact for the day? <laughs> so my random fact for the day is that 95% of the serotonin that you produce in your body is actually made in your gut and it's not in your brain. Which is, yeah, not what people assume when they think serotonin. Yeah, there's a, definitely a lot of like neurobiology nerds out there who got like serotonin tattoos thinking it's all about the brain, which it plays a role, but right. it's all in the gut. Yeah, I was going to say, or like earrings, like I definitely have a friend who's yes. like a caffeine molecule and a serotonin molecule. Definitely. I think it's pretty dope. Um, so what are you drinking today? So today I'm having, actually, mm, I don't remember. It's uh, <laughs> it was a Cosmo. It was like a, it's oh, like yeah. a fruity Cosmo. Cosmonaut. That Daniel made, thank you. Cosmonaut. Like a, yeah. There we go. It's a space name. Yes. <laughs> um, which is uh, strawberry, pres- no, raspberry preserves and gin and, and lemon. Lemon. It's delicious. And I'm just having a uh, whiskey sour that my partner and co-podcaster Daniel Rigera made for me. Woo! <laughs> uh, we should cheers. Well, cheers. cheers over your mic. Okay. Whoop. Um, anyways, so I'm going to take a sip first. That wonderful sound effect was the sound of realizing we might have gotten over enthusiastic about our drinks and spilled a little bit. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, so I met you at the uh, NSF event yes. that Chicago has. Um, and I was like, your research sounds amazing. You should come on my podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> So how did you first get, first of all, how did you know to apply to your department that has like a gazillion syllables in the name? Yeah, that's a great question. So I did undergraduate research in a typical chemistry lab. It was actually like a photochemistry lab. So it was a black lab with just red light bulbs everywhere because everything was reactive to light. And I was, I had, there was one graduate student that I just gotten close with and I was like, you know, I really want to do chemistry but with drugs like, I'm really interested in like drug targets and he was like that's medicinal chemistry and I was like okay I've never heard of that <laughs> there's not many departments in the country that have them so he was the one that kind of like told me about it and then I started doing some research I googled a bunch I was a uh, junior in college and I was just like okay google is number one source like <laughs> and so I found um multiple there's like a handful of them across the country and UIC actually was the original pharmacognosy program. So medicinal chemistry is basically means drug design and pharmacognosy is natural product drug discovery. So our department focuses on natural product drug discovery and then we alter these natural products in order to be used for human health. So it's kind of like how aspirin came from willow bark. Like you knew it came from, you isolate the compound and then how can we make it like be delivered more effectively as a medicine? My heart is so, I can't believe you knew that. I love that. (laughs) I might've had a book of medical mysteries as a kid. There was a whole chapter about aspirin. (laughs) Penicillin also came from a fungus. It was excreted from a fungus that Alexander Fleming isolated. So that, those are two examples of natural products. That's awesome. So is there still a lot of natural product work going on? Yeah. So there was, the, there was a really big rise in the 70s. A lot of the, the big pharmaceutical companies got really interested in natural products. But after all the low-hanging fruit was picked, they kind of were like, eh, it's too much work 
to keep going. And so they switched to more synthetic things because it was faster and cheaper. Mm -hmm. And now we're in this state where we have a lot of antibiotic drug resistance, right? From these synthetic drugs. Right. Yeah. So now they're starting to kind of turn back to the natural products because nature is the best chemists and they were developed for a reason, right? They always, nature won't waste its time making a molecule that's not going to do something amazing for the organism. Right. Usually like either multi-purpose or like last right. exactly how long it needs to, or like, um, this kind of reminds me, we were having this conversation earlier, or me and a few friends about like, we think about like, man knows better, man will change nature. And then like 20 years later, man's like, oh fuck, I could have learned from nature. Right. Like, that system actually works better. Like mixed use and like yeah. how like ecology for like plant growing and stuff like you want multiple plants around each other that are different yes Yes. lots of like symbiotic relationships definitely yeah so um the department has been around for a very very long time i honestly don't remember what year and it's through the college of pharmacy so that's another Mm -hmm. i think that makes the department a little odd is a lot of graduate programs are in college of medicine or they're just in like the department of biology or chemistry or psychology right yeah so this is we're in the college of pharmacy we like ta farm students but we have no idea any of like (laughs) (laughs) like we are not farm d's we're not like allowed to teach so we basically just grade their tests and like scantrons and stuff right. like that. <laughs> they come for office hours and complain about why they're missing a point on this thing and right. you're like, mm, uh, yeah. the rubric said. <laughs> yeah, the professor, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then, but does your lab do a lot of this drug discovery or are you, is that the end you're on? Yeah. So we're more, we, we, so the department kind of splits sometimes. There's a lot of people who do really strict drug discovery. So, you know, like PIs and their labs will go to Iceland and, and isolate bacteria in the deep ocean. Wait, can or, I do that? Yeah, can I, I know, change right? majors? I mean, PhDs, whatever. <laughs> I know. It's a big pull for our department. And then there's like a whole lab that's focused on botany. And so they do a lot of work with red clover and hops for menopause, like mm. issues with menopause, stuff like that. But um, our lab's kind of half and half. So we do, we're really interested in chemical communication. And that sounds very broad, but it's because we're really interested in all different types. So we look at bacterial cells and human cells and funguses and all different kinds. So every grad student in our lab has a totally different project, but we all use the same analytical techniques to, mm. to analyze our systems. Yeah. So you're getting to view it across like multiple scales and multiple like types of interactions, essentially. Yeah. So like we use a mass spectrometer, which is our, our lab's focused on mass spectrometry. And so that's basically like a really, really expensive scale, like a bathroom scale, because <laughs> it, it measures things microscopically. So you're measuring like small atoms and that's why it's so expensive. And so, you know, we have like, my project is really focused on pathogenic bacteria. So the bacteria that makes you sick. And I analyze like fish intestines to study infection. But then one of my lab mates analyzes like the Hawaiian bobtail squid and another one does cheese bacteria. This so, is like, so random. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, it's, it's like pretty funny where we, whenever we give posters at conferences, we're like, we're like, oh, wait, you're in the same lab? Like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. But I thought you were doing squid. No, no, no. I'm the fish one. The oh, squid yeah. one's over there. People always are like, oh, do you study cheese too? And I was like, nope, that's just my lab mate, Jess. <laughs> does she make like the best cheese since she studied cheese? Oh, she, okay. It just so happens she's actually the cheese queen. Like Ooh. she is so, she's like turned me on to so many great cheeses. Like, she, <laughs> she's so, regardless of the fact that she's, a, she's getting her PhD in cheese, basically. <laughs> she actually knows a lot. <laughs> I feel like that has become all of our listeners like, Dream job, it's like, wait, I can get a PhD in cheese? Yeah. <laughs> Come again? <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. There's so many, like a lot, especially a lot of the cheeses that are like uh, blue cheese and brie and camembert that have these like really like interesting rinds around them. Those mm-hmm. are all microbes. Anyway, I could talk about that all day, but yeah, <laughs> Jess has a really cool. But you do fish intestines. Yeah. So I study 
pathogenic bacterial infections, like I mentioned. So those are the bad ones. So I specifically study Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a Latin name for the bacteria that's responsible for the phlegm and cystic fibrosis patients. Mm. And it has that blue-green color. It's like very clear. Um, it's very easy to, to identify. And then Vibrio cholera, which makes you... It, affects it gives you cholera. Yeah, it gives you cholera. And so it makes you poop your brains out for anyone that doesn't know. Oh, yeah. And it's really an issue in a lot of third world countries. And even in the United States, like after Hurricane Irma, my family's from Florida um, and Harvey in Houston, there were like over 50 cholera outbreaks in the United States, which is a place where we have access to lots of clean water, but there's still cholera outbreaks. Right. I mean, but once it infects like a source, it's really hard to get rid of. Yes. Um, there's a great book about like an infection in London called yes. The Ghost Map that yes. I read freshman year of undergrad and was obsessed with. It's a great book. It was like all about the epidemiology. I was like, this is so clever. I know. Also, the, the like guy who discovered that it was all about, it was all like through infection was, his name was Jon Snow. And for yes. Game Thrones listeners, yeah, Game of Thrones. So every time I read the book, I was like, hee hee. <laughs> you know, I also read that and I was like, ah, you're an old British man who removed a pump handle <laughs> from a water well. Like, um, but yeah. Yeah, so then do you have, like, fish in your lab to, like, incubate, essentially? Yeah, so, we, so we're so we more of a chemistry lab as far as our techniques. So we don't have the fish, but I have a collabor- collaborator, mm-hmm. and they have a whole, they're a zebrafish lab, and so they do a lot of neurobiology, which is, like, the general use of zebrafish. Yeah. But they're also a great use for studying infection because they're 70% homologous to humans. So their intestinal tract is just like ours. And so I'm infecting the zebrafish with Vibrio cholera, and then studying how the microbes and cholera in the gut are interacting. So do you have to kill the fish to look at this interaction? I do, yeah, sadly. But we really do try to minimize the number of... And we, we have to say sacrifice. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Sacrifice. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, no, but I mean, like, some people are interested in seeing, like, how wounds heal. But you're interested in seeing, like, the actual chemical interaction. So you've got to, like... Get that slice as soon as you can, essentially, to look at that interaction. Exactly. Yeah. So the reason why the two organisms that I mentioned, Pseudomonas originosa and Vibrio cholera, are interesting is because they they use this mechanism to be antibiotic drug resistant called biofilms. And so there are these three D structures that kind of look like a mushroom. Mm-hmm. So if you if you think like you drink a glass of water that has cholera in it, right? The the little bacteria they they honestly like they look like sperm. They have little heads and like tails. <laughs> I mean that's just the best way to explain it. That's helpful. <laughs> know so they swim right down or they migrate to wherever they colonize and that varies on the bacteria and then so for vibrio cholera they'll colonize your gut so they'll swim down to your gut and they'll start colonizing and when they get they feel like enough of each other they it's called quorum sensing so when they sense enough of each other they'll begin to excrete these molecules in order to move on if you will to like the next step and they begin the biofilm life cycle so the biofilm is like this mushroom structure that I mentioned. And so basically the bacteria ball up in this mushroom structure and excrete this goo and the goo protects them like a little shield. Mm. And so antibiotics can't penetrate this goo and neither can the host immune system like white, like white blood cells and stuff. Basically like that. they build like a little walled in community exactly. when they know that there are mu- enough of them around. Right. To and kind so, of gather up and do that. Exactly. And so it's like a surface attached microbial community is what it's referred to. Okay. And so basically they, they then, are in this little shielded community they replicate and then new cells burst open and they continue colonizing that's how you get these really really terrible infections and you have people go to the hospital and they have one infection and they end up getting another while they're there right yeah um so that's what a biofilm is and they kind of suck but they're good biofilms or not so bad ones like 
the pink stuff on your shower when you take too long to clean it. Ooh, That's a bio. Let's film. not talk about that. <laughs> it might be in my shower currently. <laughs> it's everywhere. I mean, biofilms are basically on any surface where there's moisture and like air. So plaque is actually a biofilm on your teeth. Oh. So a lot of dentists are very familiar with biofilms. So then has there ever been any use for biofilms as like, so it, it's coating and protecting these bacteria. Could you also use it to coat and protect like a medication you're trying to deliver that it like could get to, you know, like, like we don't take all everything orally because your stomach acids basically break it down and right. then it's not useful. Could you use biofilms for that? I mean, I don't see why not. I don't have any examples. I'm sure that would be really helpful for, for the probiotic field, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of, they say that a lot of issues, you know, you can drink kombucha all day, but <laughs> if your gut doesn't have the right environment to cultivate those bacteria, they're just going to pass through. Right. So I'm sure that'd be a really interesting way to kind of like have them hang out longer, maybe until the environment of your gut was right. Right. Like basically be able to survive a, a harsh environment until they can actually colonize this. I wonder... I'll see if I can find another guest for that, yeah. for that subtopic. That would be so cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm sure there's people at UChicago um, in Jack Gilbert's lab who do all the microbiome stuff that could probably give you more details. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. There's there's so many people doing so many cool things. I know. It just makes me so excited. <laughs> We're um, lucky to be in such a great city. Yeah. So then when you started doing this kind of research, was it a switch for you from going from this, like, totally blacked out lab, essentially, and being like, I like medicine, to working with zebrafish, kind of, indirectly? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I've always loved chemistry. I've always thought it was so cool since, like, eighth grade. The first time my, like, science teacher, Dr. Hernandez, like, drew an atom, I was like, whoa, like, all of that (laughs) is in this little thing here? Like, how is that possible? Um, So I think that switch was very different, but also very necessary, because even though I really enjoyed my undergraduate experience, and I learned a lot. It definitely wasn't my passion. Like photochemistry wasn't what I wanted to do. Right. Or something that I was really, really, really interested. So when I got here, it was just like a, I was like, I felt like a little kid. My eyes were just like, whoa. <laughs> and on top of being like, like I said, in such a great city and then just such cool science going on. It's awesome. It's so much fun. And I really love too, our department has a really strong like female cohort like there's a lot of that's really awesome. strong awesome badass female professors and there's lots of badass male professors too but <laughs> like i just like how it's pretty um evened out where sometimes in some chemistry departments it can get pretty male like male heavy which right. is cool but like you know it changes nice the way though that you're going to be mentored the way that you think about yes. like interaction i i definitely understand um i thought about that a lot recently and like how there's like a often called like a leaky pipeline where it's like there's less women at the top and how that like probably impacts women in training where they're like I don't see anyone to model myself off of after for sure like yes in terms of like expectations so yeah I'm actually part of a nonprofit called EYH so it stands for expanding your horizons and the whole organization is about getting middle school aged girls more involved in STEM and seeing role models that look like them of all mm. different colors and all different backgrounds so we do like an annual conference here. It's a national organization, but I'm just part of like the Chicago, the branch. local branch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's actually coming up the, at the end of this month, so I'm really excited. And we're recording this in March, so hopefully this comes out in March. Yeah, oh yeah, people are aware <laughs> and excited about it. Um, yeah. So then, what was what was like your learning curve to 
to go from a photo lab to this, essentially? Um, yeah, it took a lot. I learned really fast. So we do rotations. I don't know if, the, I don't think all schools do that. So in different areas and different schools and it's never clear. Yeah. So we, so basically you enter and your first year you're taking classes and then you're rotating in labs and that's kind of like you get to choose slash the PI is like, sure, I'll take you on as a rotation student. Yeah. So uh, yeah, exactly. I'll give you a project. And so I learned very fast at a breast cancer lab that I am not good with human cells. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I cannot keep those things alive. But bacteria cells all day. Like that was fine. They're much more durable. Um, human cells need a lot more care and, and nurturing. Well, they just need to be babied. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> so um, it was a good learning period. I also think my, my PI is amazing. Um, I'm in a lab, actually. So my PI is a woman, mm-hmm. Laura Sanchez. She's awesome. And you should check out her Twitter, her science Twitter if you can. <laughs> Um, but my lab is also all female currently, and we are so down to have a male rotate, but so far we've only had one male rotate and <laughs> one guy rotate. But anyway, so, um, I think she was really helpful in the, in the transition. Yeah. Um, she made it really, really easy to just be, she never made me feel dumb. You know, in science, it's really common. And I think that's why a lot of people get scared of science is the imposter syndrome is real. Yes. Even if you like, I forget that I know a lot until I talk to like, like a high school or an undergrad and I'm like whoa I have definitely specialized and it doesn't feel like it because in my lab I'm like I'm not the smartest I haven't like I don't have x y and z techniques down the best Mm -hmm. and it's it is really difficult yeah I think that's one thing we really as a community have to do better we have to do better communicating our science because there are lots of people in this country who don't believe in a lot of like basic yeah basic scientific facts and so that's like on us like we need to do a better job of communicating it yeah. I know I, I know I'm preaching to the choir right now, so <laughs> I know you're all about it. No, I think that's definitely true. Or or at least so not every scientist has the time, and I understand that like if you're spending all your time like chasing grants and doing like some work is very intensive. Um, I think that you can also like just in general valuing science communication. So even if like you yourself can't do it, but knowing someone who does good outreach and like having them be rewarded for it, because I feel like in academia sometimes um, you spend a lot of time on it, and they're like, oh, but, like, why would I give you a job? All you did was talk to high schoolers. It's like, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Like, they now understand why science is cool. The fact that, like, I don't know, when I was young, I thought science was, like, memorizing facts. And now I'm like, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> it's a process. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. It's it's amazing how, and I think it just goes a lot back to the core, like, middle school, high school teachers and how they can really influence what you love to do or what you decide to chase after. Oh, yeah. they teach you. Yeah. I. There's a, I think also there's there's slowly a movement. Like I think we're getting better. There's a lot of new um, like startups that are starting. Like I know there's um, Inside, which is Integrative Science Ed. Oh. Yeah, and it's they have a couple hubs. They just opened up a hub in Chicago, but they're all about like integrating better scientific communication, teaching teachers how to teach science better. And they yeah. don't have to be a science teacher. Like you can be a drama teacher. But to incorporate critical thinking, yeah, right. That's what we're really missing, like, and like and teaching people, like students and young kids, like how to critically think for themselves, how to look for facts, how to like design, like yeah. So there's like how to do good research and that like how to know what sources to trust, and then there's right. also like how to like test things. So my friends do these things called. Shout out to Ellen Cameron. Uh, she taught me to call it bastard science. Uh-huh. But we did all these like tests like um, like we would try like, oh, do you think people can taste the color of a cocktail drink based on its ingredients if you blindfold them? Because like oh. certain flavors you're like, oh, of course that's orange because it has, you know, orange in it. Or right. like I can taste the blue curacao. And so we made like a rainbow set of colored drinks and had people, I think we had a group of like 15 blindfolded and tried these drinks. <laughs> 
awesome. And, and we're like, bastard science. And all my mom uses that phrase all the time. I and, love like, it. Try whiskeys with a blindfold on. It just makes me happy. But it is. <laughs> it's critical thinking. It's like designing a good experiment, collecting the results, and then like thinking about what they mean. And, yeah. yeah. About it. Yeah. Anyways, we can go back to your research though. <laughs> um, so you're interested in chemical interactions, but you're particularly interested in these biofilms. So, like, yes. what what about that are you studying? Yeah. So we think so. Um, there's been previous research that has shown that bile acids, which are these acids that are like that we create um, that to help break down fats, can actually prevent the formation of biofilms. But the mechanism of action is unknown. And so since our lab does chemical communication, we think it's a chemical signal. So we think that whenever the bacteria are near this bile acid, they're kind of like screaming at each other by releasing these molecules saying, hey, hey, ew, ew, like this bile acid's here. We do not want to go into the biofilm state. Like we're going to stay out of it. And if we can keep bacteria out of that biofilm state, we can keep them from being antibiotic drug resistant. So basically bacteria, when they sense the bile nearby, they're like, ah. Yeah, exactly. And so they like freak out. Interesting. So do they do they grow faster? Are they sending rapid communications between each other? So we think that so I have data and we think that they are releasing a signal or maybe a series of signals in order to alert each other to not go into the state because it's like these two different states. So they're in that like free floating state where they look like sperm. Sorry, but that's like the best thing. Yeah. And then they're in the biofilm state where they're like kind of stuck in that goo. Where they like clump together all exactly, in the goo. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. In the mushroom state. Yeah. So they're either in the sperm state or the mushroom state. <laughs> <laughs> and the bile acid, whenever it's present, prevents them from going into the mushroom state. It prevents them. It makes yeah. them all stay free floating. Yeah. So they don't die. But they're but they're at that point they're free floaters. They're still susceptible to antibiotics. So if you have a patient who has a biofilm infection, if you can stop the biofilm infection, yeah. then you can treat them with antibiotics, and it would work. Instead of treating them with antibiotics, and then the infection just keeps getting worse. Oh. So we think it's a series of, uh, or uh, we think it's a molecule. I found, I think the molecule, and I'm currently working. Much easier said than done, but I'm currently working on isolating it and mm-hmm. then I, and elucidating the structure. So identifying what it looks like or what it is, because it's currently an unknown. Right. Yeah. So you're like, I found a thing. Now I have to like map out what it looks like <laughs> and what I think, exactly. how it's basically interacting and, and causing this. Right. So I grow up these really large volumes of bacterial mm-hmm. culture and pseudomonas is like really green, blue mm-hmm. green, like I mentioned. So it's like this giant sloshy green sludge. <laughs> And then I like isolate, uh, you know, I separate it based on all these chemical techniques and try to isolate the one molecule that I'm looking for. And so that's probably going back to what we, I said earlier about industry. One of the hardest things about natural products is nature does chemistry really well. So it doesn't make a lot of anything, right? right. Like bacteria cells are so small, so they can only produce so much like, like compared to us. And so for me to get enough of the material of this one molecule that I think is responsible, it takes time. Yeah. So it's quite uh, labor intensive. But it's really rewarding once you get there. <laughs> <laughs> so then, like, how long on average does a, a single experimental run take? Um, so, of course, it varies on the experiment. But I would say for the example that we've been talking about, about like isolating and trying to elucidate the structure, uh, I think a lot of people in my department will take – it could take up to six months to do. Yeah. Yeah. So it varies. Sometimes you get really lucky and, like, you do it in three Sometimes it takes six, sometimes it takes a year. I mean, usually when it gets that long, people tend to give up on it because if, if you're trying to graduate in five years with a PhD, yeah. you usually don't have that much a year to spend on one molecule, right? So, 
Right. So then, and you're basically just like, got to grow enough of this bacteria, test it out, like weigh it. Right. You say you're doing spectrometry. Yes. Is that what I said? Spe- yeah. Spectrometry. Yeah. Okay, Mass good. spectrometry. Yeah. Glad to know. Um, <laughs> so do you do any other kinds of like uh, microscope, microscopic work to like try to understand like the physical structure? Is it mostly? Yeah. So we do a lot of um, NMR, which is stands for nuclear magnetic resonance. And I know that's a lot of jumble. The only <laughs> reason I know that is it's that technology that uh, fMRI research is based yes. off of. Is it's the same idea of basically you can you can shoot a bunch of energy into different molecules, and when they're gonna uh, spin. spin flip, essentially, they'll release the spike of energy, and what frequency you see it at mm-hmm. uh, tells you what is doing the spin flip. Yeah, so there's almost like a little book, like a handbook. Yeah. Honestly, it's like a textbook, and you can just look through it and be like, oh, I see a frequency or a peak at this number, therefore it must be a carbon with two hydrogens on it or, you know, yeah. for example, yeah. It's very, it's a very clever way and you end up creating this like graph where it's like a long y-axis and then like little spikes along the x-axis and exactly. the spikes tell you where they are on the y, or yeah, where the tall y ones are on the x tells you what that object is. Right. It's very clever. Yeah, and there's lots of, it, it's incredible, I think about it all the time, you know, um, all these amazing analytical techniques that we have, like these separation techniques and mass spectrometry, which weighs the microscopic things. Someone developed that. Like, that's incredible. <laughs> and, and I was in a class um, when I was taking my last class last year for my PhD. She, one of the professors mentioned, she goes, it's been like 20 years or 30 years since anyone's developed a new mass spectrometer. So I'm looking at all of you to be the next ones. And I was like, are you crazy? Uh, like, there's no way. Also, tool development is like the slowest, biggest pain in the ass. Yeah. Like, oh. But there's labs. I mean, there are lots of labs all over the country that spend their entire PhDs like working on building new mass spectrometers or new NMRs or new yeah. whatever instruments. Yeah. Like, all the instruments in hospitals. Like, there are labs, like, research labs that people spend their whole PhD doing that. Yeah. I designed the greatest new sailing bag. And yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that could be so important for, people, like, the military, right? Yeah. Can you imagine if you could, like, bring something? I don't know. They're right. More robust and, like, also, you know, gets into the body faster so that they're hydrated faster yeah. if they have a real bad problem or something. Like, there's this, okay, there's this, I'm going to nerd out really quick. There's this super cool new, like, thing in mass spectrometry called an eye knife. And so I, I don't know if they're like making fun of iPhones or, or whatever, <laughs> the eye, but basically it's a knife that surgeons can use, like just like any other knife to during surgery. And so when they're cutting into a patient or whatever they're doing, all of the like there's like microscopic sprays basically happening, right? Because like, like you're cutting into the human, so like right. there's things coming out. And the eye knife not only does the cutting, like it should, like a regular knife, but it also has a mass spectrometer attached to it, so it can like like suck in all of the molecules coming out and then analyze what's coming out. So you can see when like you get to the tumor. Let's so you can say, sample and know what the local, whatever you're cutting. Surgery. Whoa. It's so cool. It's so cool. That's so cool. So like you can, like the cancer cells are going to have a slightly different chemical. Yeah. Chemistry. Mil- yeah. Something exactly. else is going on there. And so you can recognize and it's like, it's almost like using a Geiger counter as a knife. Yeah. Like, beep, 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 beep. we found the tumor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. Right. Oh. So you can like study chemistry in real time. That's awesome. Which is awesome. And anyone that likes mass spectrometry would totally love that. <laughs> That's super cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got totally off though. We were talking yeah. about NMR. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that was my fault. I got really excited about some digressions. Um, but you were talking about how you're, how you're looking at this chemical structure, right? Like the physical structure in yeah. this case. 
Yeah, and so we use, specifically, we use a type of mass spectrometry called imaging mass spectrometry. And so what's really cool is that normally, like I mentioned, in mass spectrometry, you basically are weighing what's in your sample. So you're microscopically figuring out like what compounds in your sample. But with imaging mass spectrometry, what you do is you can take like a bacteria yeah. that you grow on an agar piece of agar, which is basically like jello. I was going to say it's sugar jello. Yeah, it's just sugar jello. And it has all the nutrients the bacteria need. And then you can analyze the entire sample and then visualize where the molecules are. So you're not only figuring out what molecules are in it, but where they're located. So I can see with our technique, if the bacteria, if the molecule is in the colony or if it's being excreted from the bacterial colony, if it's in an ovary or if it's being excreted from an ovary. My lab mate does like ovarian cancer stuff, which is so cool. And her paper's coming out right now. So yeah. um, And then like I mentioned the squid earlier, or, but I do a lot of like, so I'm studying infection in the zebrafish intestines. So I sacrifice the fish and I remove their intestines. And then I do this imaging technique on their intestines. And I can see all the different chemistry that's going on from the foregut and the hindgut. So it's like both like along the gut, but also can you tell if it's like in the filet versus like in the center yeah, of the gut? Yeah, yeah. Like where it is in the tissue. We were actually brainstorming that today because, you know, there's a lot of um, limitations sometimes based on like you know, we're talking about things that are micron size. So micron is like 10 to the negative six. So really, really small. And these instruments are able to analyze things up to like 10 microns. Mm-hmm. So pretty small, but, but not, it depends on the organism, honestly, like human cells you could probably like do, but certain, I don't know. It depends. Right. It depends how big the cells are. Yeah. And how much like resolution. Right. I mean, I feel like that's true of any scientific technique. It's all about like, how much resolution are you getting from your technique and is it answering the questions that you're trying to ask with it? Exactly. Like, like is your question within that range of, of window or right. whatever? And if it's not, then you think, okay, who can I get to help me to figure out? <laughs> <laughs> right. Who can I collaborate with? Yeah. It's a different technique that can get it either smaller or bigger or whatever you need. Yeah. yeah. I was actually just recently, my boss was like, Hey, this experiment was super cool. You should try redoing this. And I was like, awesome. And I read the paper and I, and it was this really generic microbiology technique that probably any microbiologist was like, oh, of course I do that like 10 times a day. And I was just like, I have no idea. So I emailed my friend Kaylee and I was like, hey, can you teach me how to use a microplate reader? Like something very basic, which just like measures the amount of light that passes through something every 15 minutes. She yeah. was like, yeah, I got you. Don't worry. But it, it's really great that we have such a collaborative yeah, and as long as you, you know someone who knows that other technique or who can, like, find someone for you. Right. It, like, you can still get at those questions, which yeah. is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you thinking you're going to do after you graduate? Because I know you're only a third year, but, yes. like, you'll eventually get there. Yeah. I, think, I think we all will. I'm uncertain about myself sometimes, <laughs> but... Different story. I, it's funny. I was just talking to my friend about it. I was like, I can't believe it. Like, it's weird to think that I've passed my prelim and... I'm a candidate now. Like, no, I feel just as humble as I was the first day I walked in. Like, I don't know anything. I'm just here to learn. But anyway, um, I'm really, really, really passionate about scientific communication slash outreach. Uh, I know they're kind of starting to separate a little. Like, there's a lot of people who are really more focused on the communication and outreach, but I love both. Yeah. And so I do a lot of work. I mentioned that nonprofit earlier, EYH, and I work with my local Boys and Girls Club, and I I don't know exactly what the job will be. You know, a lot of people in our field are like, oh, I'm going to be a professor or I'm going to go to industry. Right. Right. So I don't know what the title will necessarily be, but I definitely want to be involved with helping 
children and adults, like everyone, just better understand science, better communicate in general, and um, make sure that they're really using their brain before they make any statements or like, you know, really understanding their resources. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think it's interesting you mentioned that like science communication and science education are splitting because they kind of are both the same thing. I think maybe the difference is like education people think of as like just being classroom. Yes. But like science communication is really educating people. Yes. About a cool new thing they didn't even know they might care about. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the science communication people are like, oh, we don't do just out. Like we're not really involved in outreach because they see outreach as only like physically going and volunteering. But Mm -hmm. I agree with you. They're the same thing. Like they both tie together. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of, yeah, where you're, who you're trying to reach maybe in a little bit, like what kind of activities you're giving yourself to do. Yeah. And I think it's so important too that, you know, whenever you're getting your PhD, a lot of people do only think there's only academia industry and there is so much more that you can do. There's so much more you can give to your community. You can do policy, right? Like, oh yeah. Especially right now. I'm like, you know, AAAS has a uh, science and technology (laughs) policy position that you can like learn how to Teach people how yeah. to do science, how to like make informed decisions based on science. How about all of the amazing people that run the science museums across the country, across the world? Yeah. Those are PhDs that are doing that, right? And like, yeah, that's just so cool. There's so many opportunities. So to anyone out there who's just starting their PhD, there is not only academia and industry. There's so much more. So yeah. Make sure you do some digging. <laughs> False dichotomy. <laughs> um, well, I think that's a really good place to wrap up. So I'm just going to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast. You can also leave me a review on iTunes uh, because your review helps, you know, boost me in the ratings. Uh, but also uh, gets even more interesting guests on the show who find out about the podcast, essentially. Um, in addition, I have a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the podcast and help support the production costs. Because friend of the show, Tyler Dammy, has been um, wonderfully offering to edit all of these shows. Um, but we'd like to kind of make this a more sustainable project. And, uh, yeah, show him our support for doing that. Um, if you want to hear what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter, at PHDrinking. I also have a personal account, which is at Sadie Witt, though I will not guarantee it's all science. Most of it is, but not all. Uh, and then, Alana, how would you like people to be able to find you? Um, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Um, if anyone's really, really interested in learning more about my research, you can just email me, um, at my email, A-C-O-N-D-R-2 at uac.edu. And uh, as always, we'll make sure to include that, uh, in the podcast description, um, as well as a few links about your research in case people yes. want some, uh, further reading. So thanks again for joining me on the show. This Thank has been awesome. You. It's been so much fun. And to all you listeners out there, cheers!